Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 19th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part two, or chapter two, of Paul's first epistle to Timothy, part two in our presentation. This program is subtitled, Gender Roles in Apostolic Christianity, which is a discussion for the end of the presentation. We wanted to subtitle it, When All is Not All, and that is a theme as we present the opening verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. We opted for the subtitle which we did only because of the current war against traditional gender roles in modern society, which is now coming to a crescendo. In fact, there are no longer two genders. Now there are really like dozens of genders. And in reality, there are still two genders, and there are dozens of mental illnesses, or seriously, groups of seriously deluded people. In the end, God will not be mocked. There are only two genders, and they are determined by the biology of one's birth. Each gender has its peculiar role in society, in a properly functioning society. And God will not be mocked. Each gender will ultimately fulfill the roles which they were assigned. Everything else is a sickness spawned by the minds of devils. And we know who they are. Paul of Tarsus, having had both Timothy and Titus, who was the Titus Justice of Corinth, in his company for long periods of time, which is evident in Acts chapters 16 through 18 and in various of his other epistles, we may be confident that these men had learned firsthand how Paul believed that a Christian assembly should be organized and how Christians should conduct themselves in their daily lives and interactions with one another and with the world outside. We may also imagine that these pastoral epistles among Paul's letters, among his surviving letters, are very likely not the only epistles which Paul had written to his younger companions, but rather that they are the only ones which survived. As we have already discussed at length, at the time that he wrote this first epistle to Timothy, Paul had recently written the pastoral epistle to Titus, who was in Crete, where he evidently reiterated certain things as a reinforcement for Titus to convey to the Cretans. Ostensibly, Paul may have known from others what things were lacking among the Cretans. Now here in 1 Timothy, Paul repeats certain things he had recently related to Titus in the epistle to Titus, and in even greater detail. Evidently, the Christian assembly at Ephesus may have been in even greater disarray after the trouble with the silversmiths than Titus had faced in Crete. So with Paul's instructions to Timothy, ostensibly reinforcing his teaching in areas in which he felt that the Ephesians were wanting, are more comprehensive and of greater scope than what he had written to Titus. 
We must also bear in mind that Paul writes Timothy here, hoping that Timothy conducts his ministry in the city until Paul can return at some point in the near future, which we learn in chapter 3 of the epistle. It seems that Paul had planned on returning to Ephesus sometime after his planned visit to Corinth. But for reasons which we may only conjecture, Timothy does not remain and travels to Paul in Nicopolis the same winter. From here, Timothy remained with Paul until his arrest in Jerusalem. They avoided stopping in Ephesus during that journey, and Paul was ultimately sent to Rome. But Timothy was first released, as Paul stated in his epistle to the Hebrews, which we are quite confident was written from imprisonment in Caesarea. Now we will explain some of the things that happened subsequently, which we did not discuss when we presented chapter 1 of this first epistle to Timothy, where we gave a lot of this background in more detail. It is evident that sometime while Paul was in prison, and after his own release, Timothy did return to Ephesus, but he evidently did not remain there. Several years later, he went to Rome to visit Paul and stayed with him as he wrote, as Paul wrote his final epistles. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians from Rome, Timothy was not yet there with him. So Paul must have written his second epistle to Timothy just after that time, and Paul begs him to come to him. After Timothy arrives in Rome, Together they write Paul's final epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. When Paul wrote to Timothy, asking Timothy to come to him in Rome, he indicated in chapter 1 that Timothy was knowledgeable of the things happening in Ephesus, but not that Timothy was necessarily in Ephesus. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians themselves, just before writing the second epistle to Timothy, Timothy was not mentioned in the epistle. Then, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul stated, Now I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus, as Tychicus had delivered the recently written epistle to the Ephesians. This does not seem to be a statement that Paul would make if Tychicus were sent to Ephesus while Timothy was there. So Timothy must have been somewhere else in Anatolia. As Paul then says to him, Coming, bring the cloak which I left behind in the Troad with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Now Paul had already told Timothy a little earlier in that chapter, that you must be eager to come to me quickly. So again, if Timothy were in Ephesus, he would go far out of his way to go through the Troad in order to make a voyage to Rome. Ephesus is a seaport city in its own right, far to the south of the Troad. It is more likely that Timothy was in the Troad, or in some place where the Troad would be along the necessary route to Rome. So from these several circumstances, it seems that Timothy did not stay in Ephesus long after Paul wrote the first epistle to him, and that much later in their ministry, he was not in Ephesus at all when Paul wrote his second epistle to him. We say these things because these facts challenge the general belief among churchmen 
that Timothy remained the Bishop of Ephesus for Ephesus for his career, when in reality it seems that Ephesus was only a portion of Timothy's concerns. Resuming our commentary on this first epistle to Timothy with chapter 2, Paul commences by reiterating many facets of sound Christian conduct illustrating a general model of conduct for both Christians and the leaders of Christian assemblies. Paul had begun the instructions which he is about to give towards the end of chapter 1 with the statement, I commit this command to you, child Timothy, in accordance with those prophecies which have led the way before you, that by them, meaning the prophecies, you may soldier a good battle, So we see what sort of behavior it is that Paul deems necessary for a Christian soldier to conduct himself with. We also see that the Christian soldier is fighting the same battle that the Old Testament saints had failed to fight, having sold themselves into sin, and for which they were punished upon having gone astray, which is the only story that is found in the prophets. Paul then made a parenthetical remark concerning certain men that had fallen short in his time, and reminded Timothy of the suffering that they may also expect to face in this life for having also gone astray. Now he begins his exhortation. I encourage, first of all, to make supplications, prayers, petitions, giving of thanks, in behalf of all men, all men. When interpreting the epistles of Paul of Tarsus, we must be very careful not to jump to conclusions about any specific phrase or passage, but instead to weigh the meanings of all of Paul's statements against what things he had taught throughout his letters. For instance, right here at the end of chapter 1, Paul had just prayed for Hymenaeus and Alexandrus, whom he had surrendered to the adversary in order that they would be disciplined, not to blaspheme. Likewise, in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul had asked the assembly there to pray on behalf of himself and his companions that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men since the faith is not for all. Therefore, it is evident here that by all men, Paul must be referring to all pious, God-fearing men, and not merely for any and every adult male. Paul shows in 2 Thessalonians that he would not pray for the enemies of Yahweh, but only for deliverance from them, for his own deliverance from them. This is something that he had also exhibited elsewhere such as in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, where he referred to those who both killed Prince Joshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men. If this wicked race of men are not in the category of all men, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, then we should not imagine Paul to be including them here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Where Paul speaks of men, of course, he is referring to the Adamic race alone as he himself uses the term for man in Romans chapters 5 and 8 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Of course, we cannot offer the entire proof here. But it is demonstrable from scripture and history that the Adamic race is the white race and only they alone are addressed in the promises and covenants of scripture. To add anyone else is to use the term in a context other than Paul himself had consistently used it, and that is also dishonest. Paul then extends his call for prayer, and in verse 2 he says, in behalf of kings and all of those who are in preeminence, in order that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all piety and reverence. Now, note that Paul does not encourage prayer for worldly rulers for the sake of the rulers themselves, but only for the sake of the assembly of Christians, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all piety and reverence. So Paul encourages prayer for rulers so that Christians are not persecuted, as it says in Proverbs chapter 29. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Paul had likewise explained in Romans chapter 13 that tyrannical government is a punishment from Yahweh God, so that he may punish the wicked. For as Paul concludes in verse 3, This is good and acceptable before Yahweh our Savior, who desires all men to be preserved and to come into full knowledge of the truth. Again, the term all men is fixed in its meaning throughout Paul's epistles. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warns of certain men who for their sin and their pride are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Peter in chapter 3 of his second epistle made a statement similar to that of Paul here, but more explicitly narrows the intended scope where he said, The prince does not delay the promise, as some regard delay, but has forbearance for us, not wishing for any to be destroyed, but that all should have space for repentance. Repentance was the offer made to the children of Israel, to turn from their sins and return to God in Christ. One place this is made is in Ezekiel chapter 18, which was written long after the Assyrian deportations of the house of Israel, along with most of Judah. And it says, Yet saith the house of Israel, the children of Israel being portrayed as rebelling against God. Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal, O house of Israel. Are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, saith Yahweh God. Repent and turn yourselves from all of your transgressions. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. Repentance is only relative to the children of Israel. As Paul explained in Romans, that sin is not imputed where there is no law, and the law was given only to the children of Israel. Likewise, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that servants of God must act in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. 
If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The devil to whom Paul refers to that same class of wicked men he condemns in his epistle to the Thessalonians. Peter also warned that your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So the knowledge of the truth is a knowledge of the truth in God, which was promised to the children of Israel in the writings of the prophets. This we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, where the word of God says, Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and I will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and I will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Now Paul continues in that same light to reveal the truth of which he speaks. And he says, For Yahweh is one, and one mediator of Yahweh, or of God, and men, a man, Yahshua Christ, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, the proof in proper times. The last phrase here appears in the King James Version as to be testified in due time. However, the word is not a verb, but a noun, marturion, which may be a testimony, proof, or evidence. The mediator is not to be testified. The mediator is the testimony. That's what Paul is saying. Christ is the testimony given in proper times. There are some, um, in, in this one section of Paul's epistle, there are some marked departures among the manuscripts. The Codex Alexandrinus here wants the word, the words rendered the proof entirely. The Codex Claromontanus has referring to Christ who is the proof given in proper times. There are other minor variations. The proof in proper times seems to be an assertion that the appearance of the Messiah was in accordance with the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, and therefore Yahweh God had deemed that to be the appropriate time of his sacrifice on behalf of the children of Israel. Even though their seven times period of punishment under worldly governments was not yet complete. As the prophets allude, and as the revelation proclaims, a second manifestation is necessary for him to take vengeance upon his enemies and secure Israel his bride for himself. So Paul says that the incarnation of Christ was a proof or a testimony or an evidence of the purpose of God and the surety of the covenant. As Christ himself said, as it is recorded in both Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Likewise, the word of Yahweh said concerning the children of Israel in Hosea, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, 
I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Here Paul informs us that Yahshua Christ is that ransom. And Yahweh being one, Yahshua Christ must be the Yahweh God incarnate who said, I will ransom them from the power to grave. I will redeem them from death. In Isaiah chapter 45, the word of Yahweh God referred to himself as a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. If Christ is not God, then the entire scriptures are false. If Yahshua Christ is God incarnate, then the scriptures are true, and all of the contenders and Trinitarians are liars. Paul explained in Galatians and several times in his epistle to the Hebrews that Yahshua Christ was the mediator of the New Covenant. Certain sophists attempt to use those statements to prove that somehow Yahshua Christ is not Yahweh incarnate. However, they are placing their own worldly limitations on the concept of this mediator. Yahweh God the Father chose to be his own mediator as he was incarnate as Yahshua the Messiah. And although in times past he had chosen to interact with men in different manifestations, there is nevertheless only one God. So Paul calls him in chapter 1 of this epistle the King of the Ages, the incorruptible, invisible, only God. And in chapter 3 says that he has been manifest in the flesh, justified in spirit, has appeared to messengers, has been proclaimed among the nations, is believed in the society, and taken up in splendor. Paul likewise wrote in Hebrews chapter 2, For surely not that of messengers or angels has he taken upon himself, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh to make a propitiation for the failures of the people. The only conscience, that the only God consciousness before Christ is Yahweh. And if he made a a conscious decision to become like the brethren, then he must be Yahshua Christ as well. If you don't understand these things, the Spirit of God is not in you to understand them. It's that simple. All of these things refer to both God and Christ, and they must be one and the same entity. Then in reference to Christ as the proof in proper times, Paul says, for which I have been ordained, and the Codex Alexandrinus has entrusted there, for which I have been ordained a herald and an ambassador, or apostle, if you will. I speak truth, I do not lie, a teacher of nations in faith and truth, And here, as I said a couple of passages ago, there are an inordinate number of variations among the manuscripts. After I speak truth, the Codices Sinaiticus, Cois Linianus, and the majority text interpolate the words, among the anointed, I speak truth among the anointed, which the King James usually has as something like, I speak the truth in Christ. 
And Paul did use that formula right around the same time in his second epistle to the Corinthians, the next epistle of his surviving letters, in chapters 2 and 12, where Paul says, a teacher of nations in faith and in truth, the Codex Sinaiticus has in knowledge and in truth, the Codex Alexandrinus has in spirit and in truth. I mention these variations here because it is a um, higher frequency of variations than, than we should be accustomed to seeing in these epistles, all in one passage. Significant variations. Most of the variations are insignificant. Of course, Paul's ordination was to bring the truth of the gospel to certain nations, which he describes in Romans chapter 4 as the nations which had come from the seed of Abraham as he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Israel according to the flesh. This same thing is expressed in Acts chapter 9, where the Spirit of Christ speaks to Hananias of Paul, and he says, Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And that's what it says, in spite of the modern mistranslations. And Paul says here in verse 8, in conclusion to his gospel commission, Therefore I wish for men in all places to pray, raising hollowed hands without anger and argument. If Yahshua Christ is the mediator who ransomed the children of Israel, as the word of Yahweh recorded in the Old Testament prophets had promised. And if Paul was ordained a herald and ambassador for that reason, then the purpose of Paul's ministry is to announce redemption to the children of Israel, and nothing more. Paul wrote the same thing in Hebrews chapter 9, where he said in reference to Christ, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the Old Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Likewise, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul professed, and when the fulfillment of the time had come, the proof in proper times, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. And because you are sons, Yahweh has dispatched the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Father, Father. The Galatians, being descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, already were sons, and therefore they received the Son. They were redeemed because their ancestors were under the law. If one was not under the First Testament, meaning that if one was not a descendant of the ancient people of Israel, one has no chance of being called, as Yahweh promised in Isaiah chapter 41. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom... I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee 
and have not cast thee away. For this, men in all places, meaning the men of the children of Israel, should pray for the culmination of their impending redemption. In the epistle to the Romans, speaking of the singular creation of Adam as opposed to other creatures, Paul had said in chapter 8, To transientness the creation was subjected, not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then, and not alone, but also they having the first fruit of the Spirit, and we ourselves with them lament, awaiting the placement of sons, the redemption of our body. And later in that chapter, Paul compares that creation of which he speaks to other creations, such as angels and heights and depths and other things, even inanimate things, showing that he was speaking about the Adamic race solely as the whole creation and one creation. Isaiah chapter 43 explains what Paul was referring to and again sets the context for what he refers to here in 1 Timothy where it says, and we will read a lengthy passage but not quite the entire chapter but now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob Paul is speaking about a particular creation in Romans chapter 8 and he that formed thee, O Israel fear not, for I have redeemed thee I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine when thou passest through the waters I will be with thee and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee when thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon thee and this is a reference to the scattering of Israel and most of Judah and the trials that they must face and that scattering was accomplished 700 years before Christ for I am Yahweh thy God the Holy One of the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. In other words, Yahweh God has no more claim on Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba. He gave them up for the children of Israel. And that's an explanation for another time. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, the scattered children of Israel. Even everyone that is called by my name, he had said elsewhere in Isaiah, that he only called Israel by his name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. So Israel is the whole creation of Romans chapter 8. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, 
that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So Christ being God, Christ being a God, as the Apostle Thomas called him God, couldn't have been formed. He must have been Yahweh. His body may have been formed in a womb, but he must have been Yahweh. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. So Christ is Yahweh. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. So even these, along with Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, and Sheba, are not necessarily among all the nations being gathered together, which is a reference to the gathering of the children of Israel. Yahweh gave up these other nations. Let all the nations be gathered together, must therefore be the nations of the promise to Abraham, the sons and daughters of Israel, brought from afar. These other nations have a clearly separate fate, even those that were Adamic, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba, which were given up. I am Yahweh your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And this describes the redemption for which Paul asks all men everywhere to pray, referring to all the men of Israel. Paul had no commission to bring the gospel to anyone else. Reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins, and the destruction of Babylon, which represents their captivity and punishment, and the destruction of the other nations, represented here by Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, were in exchange for the well-being of the children of Israel. We find it necessary to explain all of this for the fools who throughout the entire Christian age have read all men or all men everywhere in one of Paul's epistles and have used those phrases as an excuse to disregard everything else Paul had written concerning redemption, reconciliation, and the true mission of Christ according to the prophets in all the rest of his epistles. But we cannot force Paul to be a hypocrite or to contradict himself. So therefore, where Paul says, all men, the meaning must be restricted by all of his other explanations of the scope and purpose of God. So all men does not mean all men outside of those men to whom Paul was bringing the gospel of Christ in accordance with those prophecies which had led the way before you that by them you may soldier a good battle, as he had informed Timothy earlier in this epistle. If it is not in accordance with the words of the prophets, then ostensibly one cannot be a good soldier in the army of Christ. 
So Paul has described what he expects to be the general deportment of Christian men. And now he goes on to discuss women. Likewise, women, in moderate attire, are to adorn themselves with modesty and discretion, not in braids and in gold or pearls or in very expensive garments, but that which is fitting with women professing fear of God through good works. In our Christogenian New Testament translation, we had originally written wreaths in verse 9, rather than braids. The phrase, and plegmasin, is a preposition with a dative plural form of the noun plegma, which is ambiguous and refers to a plated work of any sort, where it may be either wreaths or braids. In ancient times, Greek women, and on occasions Greek men as well, frequently wore wreaths in their hair. However, it was not until we learned that in first century Rome, elaborate braids were a very popular fashion item amongst women, that we were certain that Paul was referring to braids here. Most often these braids were worn in piles atop a woman's head, exposing her entire head to view. So we are also now persuaded that Paul referred to this same practice where he warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that a woman should not have her head uncovered and stated that her hair was given to her for a covering. We will link a group of images of first century Roman busts of women with our notes to this podcast and that would that that will serve to illustrate what we're speaking of here. And when I had translated the Christogenian New Testament, I was not in a place where I had easy access to be able to study Roman art. I, I just didn't have it and didn't realize that it had to be braids that Paul was speaking about here. But it is. Gold and pearls and very expensive garments are obviously outlandish and immodest for Christians who should despise such worldly riches. The Apostle Peter in chapter 3 of his first epistle gave very similar advice where he said, Likewise the wives being subject to their own husbands in order that if some then disobey the word, speaking about the husbands, through the conduct of the wives they shall have advantage without the word because the wife, a good wife, would guide the husband, observing it in fear, your pure conduct, of which the dress, the dress of the wife, must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man of the heart, the Adamic man and woman, but the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. For thusly at one time also the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves, meaning they dressed themselves modestly, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. And yes, Peter knew 
by this time in his ministry that he was speaking to scattered Israelite women. Modesty may be considered relative, but when Christian men see it, they know what it is. And when Christian men see immodesty, they know what that is. An immodest woman is not subjecting herself to her husband when she is dressed in a manner which can be sexually alluring to other men. We would not condemn a woman or girl for modest attire, modest hair decoration, or even modest jewelry. But one example for immodesty is found in Isaiah chapter 3. And many women are found in this same state today, where we read, Moreover, Yahweh saith, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore, Yahweh will smite with a scab the crown of the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will discover their secret parts. In that day Yahweh will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet, and their calls, and their round tires like the moon. Evidently a poor translation, a reference to some sort of crescent-shaped ornaments or pendants. The chains, and the bracelets, and the mufflers, the bonnets, and the ornaments of the legs, and the headbands, and the tablets, and the earrings, the rings... The nose jewels, there's nothing new under the sun. The, and this is another poor translation, the changeable suits of apparel, which is better rendered, the costly festive robes, and the mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, I guess a corslet or something like that, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Seeing what these women were condemned for, it is evident that Christian women should not seek to make such spectacles of themselves when they dress. And if you make a spectacle of yourself when you dress, if you dress because you want to look sexy and attract the attention of men, you are not subjecting yourself to your husband. You're, you're actually quietly rebelling against your husband. You can be beautiful and be modest. And modest women have much more respect from other men, as do their husbands. Paul continues to speak of behavior. A woman must learn in quiet and in all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach, nor to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And where Paul says, I do not permit, he is admitting that there is no specific law. So he does not say that God does not permit, or Christ does not permit. Often, in his epistles, when there was no explicit law governing a situation, Paul gave his opinion, which was nevertheless grounded in the examples of Scripture. Here also, Paul is following the example of the Scriptures, as the Old Testament Scriptures teach these things by example, but not by law. 
When we see words such as teacher or scholar in the Old Testament, the forms are always masculine. There are no female scribes, no female heads of household or tribe, and a special law had to be made so that women could even retain the property of their fathers in case there were no surviving brothers. Where there was a queen in Judah, it was a usurpation by a wicked woman with evil intentions when Athaliah seized the throne and attempted to have all the male heirs slain. Deborah was a prophetess, and that is an office which women may hold, as they were also recognized in the New Testament. But she was nevertheless not a leader of men, and when Barak insisted she go with him to battle, he was punished and put to shame for his insistence. Deborah was a judge, but that was an exception to the rule, and combined with Barak's behavior, shows us the sad state of men at that time. And that is how I must interpret that. There were no other women judges. So there are roles which women should not assume. And even though there are exceptions, the exceptions should not be taken advantage of to undermine the rule of a normally functioning society. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, and and I'm sorry, I'm still typing and I shouldn't be, we read the following in the law. The woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto Yahweh thy God. We do not believe this is talking about mere clothing. Of course, it's not good for men especially, to wear women's clothing. It's not really even good for women to wear men's clothing, although sometimes they could get away with it more discreetly. Sometimes. Men did not even wear pants in those days. But rather, the garments worn by men and women typically reflected occupation and social status, and not merely gender. Therefore, We are persuaded that a woman putting on a man's garment represented the assumption by the woman of a man's function or station in society, and the same with men for women. That would indeed be an abomination. Looking to the greater Greek society, of which Judea had long been a part at the time Paul wrote, and which had also most of these attitudes in common with both ancient Hebrew and Roman culture, even though Roman culture was a little more liberal, we see a patriarchy in which most women had very little to say in public. The following is an expansion from a paper I had written some years ago titled, Paul Was Not a Misogynist. Paul has often been accused of such women-hating for his remarks here. But if he was only upholding godly standards which had been in place in society for many centuries, he was actually a lover and protector of both women and families, and not a hater at all. And that's the truth. Where Paul gives these exhortations concerning women, he's loving and protecting their traditional role in society. And he's not a hater at all. And here's what I wrote 
which Clifton Emmeheiser first published in December of 2005. The opinions which are formulated in and acted on by society today are not correct simply because a majority of people here are persuaded by them. Christianity is not a democratic institution, but rather a theocratic one. A woman's place was to be subject to her husband, as with Paul, where he makes such statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, also with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, and so with Yahweh in Genesis 3.16. We have already cited 1 Peter chapter 3 through verse 6 here, where Peter had used the scriptural example of Sarah's subjection to Abraham as a model for the daughters of Sarah, the Christian Christian women of Anatolia whom he was addressing. Here are the relevant passages which we had cited from Paul's other epistles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3. Paul said, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We may have rendered that, that the head of every man is the anointed, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the anointed is God. And I believe that's how we have it in the Christogenian New Testament, if I'm not mistaken. In Ephesians chapter 5, Subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. Wives to their own husbands, as if to the prince. Because the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the assembly. He is the deliverer of the body. And in Colossians 3.18, Wives, subject yourselves to the husbands, as is proper with the prince. What a Lord. In Genesis 3.16, after Eve was led away into sin by the serpent. Yahweh says to her in part, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. This was not her punishment. Rather, it is a command for her to be restored to her rightful place. Examining the account of the creation of woman in Genesis chapter 2, the woman was made to be a helpmate for the man in verses 18 and 20. The man wasn't supposed to be a helpmate for the woman. The woman was made to be a helpmate for the man. And the woman was presented to the man, not the man to the woman. So Eve's subjection to her husband was her restoration to her natural place in God's creation. Continuing with our 2005 paper, we said, A woman's place was to keep the household, as it was in Greek society, citing Euripides's. Alcestis and Electra, and so with Paul, citing Titus 2.5. And so in the Old Testament, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 31. Those who doubt the validity of Paul's instruction here contend not with Paul, but with the entire Bible, especially with Proverbs chapter 31, which is an excellent role of the importance of the woman in managing the household which we won't recite here. In Euripides' Alcestis, the title character was portrayed as a noblewoman who, for various reasons, chose to give up her own life in place of her husband, Admetus. 
Later, for her bravery and sacrifice, the Greek idol Heracles was said to resurrect her from the dead and restore her to her family. Here we see her exhortation to her husband before her death, beginning from line 299. Well then, she says, remember to show your gratitude for this, because she's dying on behalf of her husband. I shall not ask you, for the return my act deserves, for nothing is more precious than a life. But for what is right, as you agree, as you will agree, for you love these children, meaning the children they had together, as much as I do, if you are in your senses. Keep them as lords of my house, and do not marry again, putting over them a stepmother, who will be less noble than I, and out of envy will lay a hostile hand to your children and mine. No, do not do it, I beg you, for a stepmother comes in as a foe to the former children, no kinder than a viper. And our point here is to show the social standards of the ancient Greek world, not to hold up Euripides as scripture, believe me. Euripides in Electra, which is a play about the daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, who with her brother Orestes had plotted revenge against Clytemnestra, their mother, and her lover, for the murder of their father after his return from the Trojan War. Agamemnon came home from, I think it was 11 years of the Trojan War, and Clytemnestra is shacked up with Ahegisthus, I believe I should pronounce his name, Ahegisthus, and, and they slay Agamemnon as he returns. So Electra and Orestes, her brother, the adult children by that time of Agamemnon, plot, plotted revenge against their own mother and slew her instead. And here we shall read from line 54 to play. And these are the words attributed to Electra. O black night, nurse of the golden stars, in which I go to the river streams, bearing this pitcher resting on my head, not because I have come to such a point of necessity, but so that I may show to the gods Ahegisthus's insolence, her mother's lover, right? And send forth laments into the wide sky to my father. She believed that her father Agamemnon lived after death, as the Greeks did believe in the afterlife. For the deadly daughter of Tyndarius, her grandfather, for the deadly daughter of Tyndarius, my mother, has cast me out of the house to please her husband, since she has borne other children in her union with Ahegisthus. She considers Orestes and me secondary in the home. And these passages... Of course, they're not scripture, right? These passages show the importance of women in Greek society as keepers and rulers of a man's household. Alcestis was afraid that her children would be displaced if Admetus took a new wife. Clytemnestra cast her own children out in order to please her new husband, since the man was the master of the woman. Likewise, Paul had written in Titus chapter 2 verse 5 of older women 
that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God not be blasphemed. Later, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul instructs him to support widows upon certain conditions, one of them being that if she has brought up children, ostensibly, If a woman chooses to be a career girl, or to whore around rather than raising a family, she does not deserve the support of the Christian community in her old age. That's just the way it is. This is why it was so important for the noble women of scriptures to bear children, and it was considered a reproach if they did not. And the foremost examples are Sarah and Tamar, the mother of Pharez and Zarah, and the unnamed wife of Manoah, who was the mother of Samson, and Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. In all five cases, well, I'm sorry, in four of those five cases, the woman was barren beyond her years and had appealed to Yahweh in her reproach and had been blessed with children beyond with a child beyond her years unexpectedly in the case of Tamar who whose husbands who who had had been betrothed by Judah to Tamar had both died, and he withheld his first son, Shelah. Tamar, wanting what she expected to have, and wanting what she needed to have, which was a son, had seduced Judah himself. And Judah had recognized that she did well to do that, because she got what she had coming. So it was a reproach to die without children. And Paul instructs Timothy not to accept widows and not to support them if they hadn't had children. If you have, if you're barren, that's another story, right? I mean, not every woman is fortunate to have children. But if you've hoard around all your life, you don't expect the support of the church. You're not going to, you shouldn't get it. Today we have government enforced support because everybody is equal in the eyes of the government, no matter how they live their lives. And that's Marxism, right? It's not Christianity. Continuing again with our 2005 article, Paul instructs that a woman is never to have authority over a man. Citing this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And in the Old Testament, at Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, we see that it was a reproach for women to rule over men in that time also. Whether it was the noble Deborah or the wicked Athaliah doesn't matter. Neither situation says much of the men of those times. Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher, remember I'm writing this in 2005, right? Janet Reno, Diane Feinstein, and others are certainly a reproach to all Saxon men today along with the millions of women who have forsaken childbearing and normal household life for love of lucre and status. Those who feel otherwise contend not against Paul, 
but against Yahweh. And then I made another sort of contemporary reference, and I said that Judy Nipps and Nellie Babs are among their number, and I was criticizing two women who claimed to be identity Christians, but who were harsh critics of Paul of Tarsus. One of those women was a former wife of James Wickstrom, who I really shouldn't even mention here, but I did. I feel that I had to clarify that. This paper has been online now for 12 years, and some people (laughs) might be curious after all this time. I went on to say that only men participated in the democracy of Athens, and that's absolutely true. Women were excluded from politics. They did not speak publicly. And as Euripides' character, Ahithra, in his play Suppliant Women, says at lines 40 and 41, it is proper for women, if they are wise, to do everything through their men. So Paul's admonition to women, not to speak in the assembly, but to learn and inquire by their husbands, was surely not a a novel contrivance but already a part of Hellenistic culture. And Paul made that exhortation in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In fact, Athenian life was stricter yet. For in Euripides' play Hecuba, at lines 974 and 975, the title character says that custom ordains that women shall not look directly at men. The word translated custom there in the Loeb Classical Library edition of Euripides is nomos, which is law everywhere in the New Testament. Paul's admonition against women wandering from house to house, idle tattlers, busybodies, speaking things they ought not, was a normal concern long before Paul wrote such words. And in another play by Euripides, Andromache, in lines 9.30 through 9.53, the poet, through his, title, through his character Hermione, expressed very similar concerns. We're going to discuss that. Andromache was the name of a wife of Hector, a slain Trojan prince, who was enslaved and taken as a concubine by Neopotalamus, a son of Achilles, and with whom she had a son. Sometime later, she was enslaved during the Trojan War, in its aftermath. Sometime later, Neopotalamus takes Hermione as his wife, and although Andromache is marginalized and continues to lament for her first husband, Hector, Hermione is very jealous of her and plots against her and her child. This is because Hermione is described as being barren, which was the apparent source of her jealousy. Sort of like Abraham having Hagar and Ishmael with Hagar and Sarah hadn't had a child yet, right? Similar situation. The following words were placed in the mouth of Hermione by Euripides. My undoing was bad woman coming bad women coming into the house. This is Hermione speaking about why she went astray. They puffed me up in folly by speaking in this vein. 
Will you put up with this wretched captive, meaning Andromache, in your house, sharing in your marriage bed? They practiced polygamy. We don't condone that, but they practiced it. By the goddess, in my house she would not have taken her pleasure of my husband and lived looking on the light. These are these bad women encouraging Hermione to do something evil. I listened to these sirens' words, these clever, knavish, deceitful chatterers, Andromache speaking, and became inflated with foolish thoughts. What necessity was there to keep such a watch on my husband when I had all I needed? All I needed. I had great wealth. I was mistress in the house, and I would have borne legitimate children, while she would have borne bastards with half-slave parentage to serve my children. And the Greeks, in this case the Athenians, would have considered children of Greek Trojan parentage to be bastards. And she goes on to say, But never, never, for I will say it more than once, ought sensible men who have wives to allow women to come visit their wives in the house. They are the ones who teach evil. One corrupts her marriage with an eye to gain while another who has slipped from virtue wishes for company in her vice, while others act from mere lewdness. That is the source of the disease in the houses of men. In view of this, guard well with bolt and bar the gates of your houses, for visits of women from outside are the cause of nothing that is sound, but of much trouble. So Euripides is really making a social statement through the mouth of his character Hermione. So where Paul of Tarsus spoke about so-called younger widows, and we shall discuss his terminology in greater depth in the weeks to come, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he spoke about so-called younger widows, and with all, they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also tattlers and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Where Paul said that, we can see from Euripides that he was addressing an ages-old concern. Euripides preceded Paul by nearly 500 years. Nearly. Continuing with our 2005 article, I have cited Euripides here, having his writings at hand, which I did at the time, and having recently read them, yet may refer to a plethora of Greek writers, even those closer to Paul's own time, to show that Paul was not being novel to the Greeks concerning the treatment of women or the conduct of women. Strabo, Strabo, I'm sorry, Strabo sometimes it's pronounced. Strabo, speaking of the Cantabrians of Iberia and some of their customs, where women have influence over their kinsmen, says, the custom involves, in fact, a sort of woman rule, but this is not at all a mark of civilization. 
Theodore Siculus, and Strabo wrote in the same century as Paul, Theodore Siculus, a century earlier than Paul, speaking of the mythical Amazon, says that the men, however, like our married women, spent their days about the house, carrying out the orders which were given them by their wives, meaning that Greek wives spent their days around the house, carrying about the orders that were given them by their husbands. And they took no part in military campaigns, or in the office, or in the exercise of free citizenship, in the affairs of the community by virtue, of which they might become presumptuous and rise up against the women. And so, of course, in reality, in the Greek world, women kept the home, having no voice in the community, nor role in the government. The very role for women described in Proverbs chapter 31. As it was in the book of Numbers, so also in Matthew, in Matthew 14.21, Matthew 15.38, women were not counted. It is not that women do not count, God forbid. Yet the woman's role in a proper Christian society is clearly defined. And Paul explains that role properly. Pity those who doubt the truth of such matters. Nothing Paul says is contrary to Old Testament instruction or practice. And that concludes our citation from my 2005 article, which primarily sought to put Paul's admonishments concerning women into a correct historical, social, and scriptural context. There should be little doubt as to why feminists and all those who despise Christian traditions hate him today. And Paul continues here by giving the first example of his opinion towards women. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled when the transgression occurred. The majority text has only apateo, or beguiled, where our text follows the codexes Sinaiticus Alexandrinus and Claromontanus, which all have exapateo, which is a strengthened form of the same word, and therefore we have thoroughly beguiled, or perhaps completely seduced. To us this indicates that Eve was seduced beyond a mere mental seduction, as there was certainly an associated and sinful act resulting from that seduction. Being completely seduced, or thoroughly beguiled, she was seduced in every way, mentally and physically. We're in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, and we see that through envy of the devil, death came into the world. And not through envy of some mere thought, or some literal piece of fruit. The phrase here, en parabasai, en parabasai gigan, I'm sorry, en parabasai, whoa, I can't, I'm tripping over my words, en parabasai gigan, may have even more literally been rendered as the transgression happened, or as the transgression occurred. The verb gigannon refers to the transgression, not to the woman, as Adam and Eve had both clearly sinned, 
So we do not like any of the mainstream translations of this verse. As we read in Job chapter 31, If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom, and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22, For as in Adam all die, the greater weight of sin was placed upon Adam, not upon Eve, as she was deceived, but Adam had no such excuse. A transgression occurred or happened. A sinful act took place well beyond some mere thought crime or mental seduction, and Adam then took part in it willfully, purposefully. Here Paul uses the comparison that Eve was deceived, but that Adam did willfully. To illustrate one reason why women should not be allowed to teach men, as he evidently makes a statement that women are more easily led astray. Of course, that attitude would also be met with resistance today. However, it must be known that men and women were indeed designed for their particular intended functions by the providence of God. For example, the woman, with her greater empathy and tendency to nurture, is better designed for her natural role as a mother and comforter of children. But that same empathy and tendency to nurture leaves her not so fit to command armies and kingdoms. However, only when women perform that first duty is the later even made possible. Since the family is the most basic necessary component of the kingdom. So Paul concludes, but she will be delivered through childbearing if they abide in faith and love and sanctification with discretion. As Paul explains in 1 Timothy chapter 5, If any widow has child or grandchild, they must first learn piety at home and to return compensation to their ancestors. So the woman is instrumental in the transmission of Christian ethics, culture, and racial awareness to future generations. And that's what I read from a woman teaching her children and grandchildren, piety at home, and to return compensation to their ancestors. In this last century, that role has been relinquished to the public school systems, and any objective observation of the result of that policy is the best defense of the opinions of Paul of Tarsus. This concludes our commentary on 1 Timothy chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Good night.
Don't you know that I'll always be true?